Welcome to Night Night Bitch. I'm your host, Molly, your guide to awe-inspiring texts read by me or in the voices of their original creators. Please know I don't own any of this content. It's all freely accessible online and duly cited in my episode descriptions for your reference. This podcast is a creative outlet for me, so I don't update it as regularly. But if you'd like to subscribe to my other podcast, Back From The Borderline, I release two thought-provoking episodes each week. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome. It's time to rest your weary mind, unwind, escape the matrix, and explore the arcane. We live in a culture that is rapidly losing its grasp on myth and meaning. Exploration of philosophy, depth psychology, esotericism, the occult, myth, and mysticism have been proven to inspire awe. Such experiences of daily awe have been shown to be psychologically beneficial and aid in the potential expansion of consciousness. Each time we're here together, I'll select a reading, article, or sample audio that could increase your opportunity for such experiences. While you listen, you might fall asleep. You might wake up. You might do both. Maybe finding the perfect balance between awake and dreaming is exactly what you always needed. Night night bitch. This is the exercise for your own development process designed by you. You should be hearing my voice in your right ear. Remember the purpose, your purpose for this exercise. And begin your pre-preparation process now. The affirmation beginning, I am more than my physical body. Welcome back to part three of our reading of Manly P. Hall's The Wisdom of the Knowing Ones. While we read chapter two, you will be hearing the frequency of 528 hertz. This solfeggio frequency has been known to return DNA to its original state, bringing positive transformations and changes in consciousness, which might be seen as a miracle. It's a miracle to change your mind. That is alchemy. So speaking of your mind, I'll ask you to open it now as we begin with chapter 2 Parallels between Eastern 
and Western Philosophy Part 1 Gnosticism The Science of Salvation Religions and philosophies come into existence, unfold their teachings, attain their maximum sphere of influence, and then either diminish and fade away, or are subject to broad renovations and reforms. It is possible to construct a graph which shows clearly the parallels between the motion of ideas and the evolution of organic forms in nature. From the study of such a graph, if carefully prepared, a quantity of useful information can be gathered. Several interrelated factors influence the complicated course of a spiritual revelation. First of all, a major philosophical system nearly always originates in a period of moral or ethical confusion resulting from a spreading revolt against some earlier school of thought that has lost its effectiveness. A new belief must also be placed in its proper setting involving the time factors and the environment in which some reformation is urgently required. It follows that, in almost every instance, beliefs originate in a local need and therefore develop in the restricted atmosphere of a clan, tribe, or community. They must also be considered as the productions of emergencies. The gods long honored by a people have ceased to answer its prayers or have no longer bestowed protection against the enemy. On a philosophical level, the experiences of the community may have advanced the people until the beliefs of their ancestors are no longer satisfactory or applicable to existing conditions. A new teaching, in order to survive, must transcend the area, the time, and the conditions associated with its origin. A faith given to a people living in a desert must be acceptable to those who dwell in cities. It must extend its influence through the levels of society finding enthusiastic exponents among farmers, merchants, professional persons, and aristocrats. If it cannot adapt itself to the needs of the many, its influence will always be restricted to the few, and as these die out, the doctrine itself must perish. There are also larger considerations. A teaching to gain world prominence must transcend barriers of language, the isolating factors of political systems and find ways of supplanting older beliefs or forming a cooperative partnership with them. Having thus assured a large area of influence, 
it must cope with the factor of time, which in turn is the measure by which social change is weighed and estimated. As it is relatively impossible for any human being to foresee the mental, emotional, and physical conditions of his remote descendants, or estimate the problems that future ages must meet in order to survive, it is inevitable that men will outgrow the interpretations of their forebears have placed upon spiritual and natural phenomena. Progress does not disturb facts, but it does require a new interpretation of the moral and ethical implications of realities universally accepted and respected. It's interesting to compare situations that arose almost simultaneously in the unfoldment of Eastern and Western civilization. For a long time, it was assumed that the timing was coincidental, but it is now suspected that some direct contact between the two hemispheres contributed to the similarities that have so long disturbed scholars. In Western civilization, which still centered around the Mediterranean area, the first century of the Christian era has been so significant as to the result in our calculation of historical sequences as before and after the beginning of the Christian era. Let us summarize briefly what may be termed the intellectual emergency. Greek philosophy had fallen into decline, and the Grecian states were under the dominion of Rome. Roman philosophy was a negligible factor, offering very little to satisfy the inner life of the Latin people. Egyptian learning had been so seriously debased that it was little more than abject formalism catering to the whims of Rome. The Jewish religion was under enormous pressure because the God of Israel had been unable to preserve the freedom of his people and had permitted the destruction of his temple in Jerusalem. Christianity was emerging, but at that time had very little general influence. It was one of those local beliefs that was tied too closely to the shores of Galilee to enjoy much respect from scholars or self-satisfied patricians. Primitive faiths on the borders of the Roman Empire exercised only a negligible influence, but the more advanced and stimulating concepts of the Persians were intriguing to the Roman legion. In various ways, systems of beliefs too old or too young to cope with the human tragedy that was being enacted in the centers of Western culture, attempted to renovate or strengthen their teachings, making them more attractive to the multitude with its countless prejudices. Out of the collapse of the School of Athens came the Neoplatonists and the Neopythagoreans of Greece, Rome, and North Africa. 
the Romans themselves began to produce a few idealistic leaders who sought to restore the sacred schools they had inherited from Greece and Egypt. The Roman situation found inspiration in Neoplatonism. The most able exponent of this system among the emperors being Julian the Apostate, Egypt was in the process of revising its own system and laying the foundations for that elusive cult which had survived to us as Hermeticism, which in turn gave rise to medieval alchemy. In the Judaic era, a forthright mysticism was evolving as a consolation in time of great sorrow. Here is the traditional source of the Sefer Yezirah, the Book of Formations, and the Sefer HaZohar, the Book of the Splendors. The Mishnah was taking precedent over the Torah, and after the Diaspora, the children of Israel carried their mystical aspirations together with the strange spiritual sciences which they evolved throughout Europe and the Near East under the broad name of Kabbalism. Christianity, although comparatively young, sensed its own need almost immediately and rebuilt its foundations upon the ministry of St. Paul, who emphasized strongly the mystical experience of Christ as the spirit of life, hope, consolation, and resurrection in the heart of every true believer. Even this broad program, however, had one besetting weakness. Christianity had developed upon a level of simple needs and naturally had little to offer to the philosopher, the scholar, and the sage. In order to solve this dilemma, the early church fathers condemned in general all branches of higher intellectualism, insisting that by simple faith alone, salvation was possible. Several groups opposed this point of view, with the result that the early centuries of Christianity were plagued with schisms and heresies. On the fringe of Christianity, where it mingled its influence with Neoplatonism and the old sacerdotal mysteries of Egypt, there developed another remarkable pattern of heterodoxies. The most famous of these were the Syrian and the Egyptian Gnosis. Around the Gnosis, and intertwining with it at least to a degree, were the Manichaeans, the Nestorians, Arianists, and pre-Islamic mystical associations of Arabia and Persia. This is a small side note from the host of Night Night Bitch. Sometimes these names are really fucking hard to pronounce, and I'm doing my best over here. Anyway, I digress. It was all very complicated, but with the concept of a graph in mind, the broad trends are immediately clear. Western man 
had reached a point of no return in his journey from antiquity to modern times. The institutions he cherished were collapsing around him. He had to either reject his faith or reform it. As the human being is by nature religious and simply declines to exist in a society devoid of abstract ideals, he followed the most reasonable course. He reserved his old heroes, honored the sanctuaries of his ancient beliefs, but convinced himself that beneath the surface of his former theological acceptances there were esoteric truths, spiritual laws, transcendental arts, and mystical forms of wisdom, and the time had come for these to be revealed. Having made his bridge, and having escaped in this way from the abstract and arbitrary boundaries of orthodoxy, he came into possession of an evolving religion, a faith that grew with him and could therefore be enthusiastically bestowed upon future ages. Thus came the days of the great evangelisms. Now let us turn our attention for a moment to conditions in Asia using the same dateline, the beginning of the Christian era. Everywhere on this vast eastern continent, religions and philosophies were in trouble. Hinduism, far from the oldest, who was still staggering under the impact of Buddhism. From his early discourses, it is evident that the Buddha actually regarded himself as a reformer of Hinduism, which was beginning to close in on the Buddhist schools. Furthermore, the old gods of India were more glamorous than the quiet, unworldly arhats who preached the way of salvation taught by the light of Asia. These arhats were also under some difficulties. In the 600 years after the death of Buddha, the Sangha or the Brotherhood had been confronted with numerous obstacles and had slowly lost the tremendous impulse bestowed upon it by the personal life and teachings of Gautama Buddha. Councils had become necessary, and the Sangha had taken refuge under the protection of benevolent monarchs and princes. It was generally assumed that Buddhism was destined to slowly fade away. Its moral code was too severe, and not many were to be found who could renounce wealth, family, social position, and even the scanty comforts of life to wander as homeless beggars along the rough roads and paths of Bengal. Buddhism had become a more or less exclusive order of monks, and like most such monastic groups, had slight hope of survival and even less hope of exercising a profound influence upon the moral life of Asia. 
Hindu scholarship was riddled with skepticism and strong traces of pre-scientific materialism were becoming evident. The various schools had little in common and the only answer was the rise of some mystical tradition. This need was met by the gradual unfoldment of yoga and the Vedanta philosophies. China was in a sad way, both politically and religiously. There was no such empire as we generally visualize when we think of the vast area of Chinese influence. There was constant warfare and bickering, rivalry of princes and continuing exploitation of the common people. Taoism, the mystical philosophy of Lao Tzu, one of the most advanced systems ever devised by the human mind, had fallen into a kind of ceremonial magic, dealing in miracles, trying to perpetuate itself by offering more and more of consolation and less and less constructive instruction. Confucianism was not much better off. The master himself died disillusioned and convinced that his ideals could not survive. They did live, but gradually fell into the keeping of a group of aristocratic intellectuals. By degrees, Confucianism was used to bolster up the aristocracy and protect it from the righteous indignation of the proletariat. Wherever Confucianism gained ascendancy, it attacked all liberalism. While it gave China a magnificent concept of life, it was never able to gain a sufficient support among leaders free from self-interest. The Near East had not yet felt the impact of Muhammad, and most of its schools of thought were drifting into compromise and exploitation. Something was urgently required and it was among the Buddhist group that this need was most clearly foreseen and adequately met. By degrees, the center of Buddhistic influence was moving out of India. One school was establishing itself on the island of Ceylon, where it managed to maintain its identity against the Hindus, Muslims, British, and other foreign powers. The other stronghold of Buddhistic philosophy was the very vast desert area we now called Turkestan, partly in China, partly in Russia, and with fragments extending through northern India and into Afghanistan. In other words, Buddhism was setting up its abode on the periphery of the East Indian sphere of influence and as it moved away from Hindu learning, it came into direct contact with a variety of national groups, racial strains, and cultural patterns. Most of those with whom Buddhism established friendly terms were in need of something more vital, inspiring, and encouraging than a doctrine of philosophic nihilism hill tribes and mountain people, and those who dwelt in the oases of Gobi, 
could not be expected to contemplate the abstractions of selflessness or the submergence of personal identity. Everywhere there was challenge, and most of the Eastern religions and philosophies had no intention of allowing themselves the luxury of liberality. They belonged to that type of thinking which condemned all change, demanded uniformity, excommunicated those who left the faith, and anathematized any who sought to reform it. Into this situation, Buddhism moved swiftly and effectively. The name most honored among the Buddhist teachers of the time was Nagarjuna. Very little is actually known about him, but there is considerable legendary, part of which, almost certainly, is founded upon early historical accounts. He is said to have been born in South India of a Brahmin family, which seems quite reasonable. Although he renounced his class and his caste, he remained to the end a man of powerful attitudes and a brilliant, if somewhat cynical mind. According to a Tibetan legend bearing upon his early life, it was predicted at the time of his birth that he would not live more than seven days. This so greatly disturbed his parents that they sought in every way possible to preserve his life by deeds of merit performed for his sake. So extraordinary were their virtues, and so diligently did they earn protection for him that Nagarjuna's life was extended to seven weeks. This, in turn, was lengthened out to seven months and then to seven years. Before he had attained to the exhaustion of his merit, Nagarjuna enrolled in the ancient priestly college of Nalanda and began to personally venerate the great Buddha, Amitayas. The piety of so young a child, the utter sincerity of his worship and the resolution to devote his entire life to the teaching of the blessed doctrine gained for him a special dispensation. Amitayas bestowed upon the child the promise that he should live for 300 years. Apparently, however, this burden of age was too great. And having completed his proper ministry, Nagarjuna is said to have committed suicide by decapitating himself. There's much to suggest that we are now in the rarefied atmosphere of Tibetan religious fiction. If we delete the extravagances, the facts seem to remain that Nagarjuna was likely a delicate child whose health caused great anxiety to his parents. In answer to their prayers and other pious devotions, he survived. And like many who are naturally lacking in robust health, he chose a religious career. In the quiet atmosphere of the sanctuary and because of his natural spiritual dedication, his health improved and he enjoyed a fairly long life. According to the Tantric School, Nagarjuna is the third of eight patriarchs through whom the doctrine descended. When the Japanese patriarch Kobo Daishi 
went to China to study the esoteric teachings of Yogacaya. He was given paintings of the eight patriarchs. It appears that two of the paintings were so deteriorated by age that copies became necessary. One of these was the portrait of Nagarjuna. This was actually copied by Kobo Daishi himself and the account is one of the best authenticated of those associated with early religious paintings. The picture is now in the Todaji Temple in Kyoto, Japan. It shows Nagarjuna seated with a distinctly non-Chinese cast of features, his complexion somewhat swarthy to suggest that he is a Hindu. He wears a robe of red and yellow stripes and holds in one hand the thunderbolt. The painting is over a thousand years old and shows considerable fading and repair, but it is probably the best available likeness of Nagarjuna and may trace back to contemporary or nearly contemporary records. The tremendous power of the patriarch is well depicted and it also reveals the extraordinary skill of Kobo Daishi as a painter of religious themes. Although the esoteric sect originally had its stronghold in China, it gradually lost most of the vitality that distinguished it in early times. In recent years, Buddhists have sought to restore their heritage and have rebuilt esoteric Buddhism upon the foundations of the Japanese records. All of this leads to a very reasonable question. What did Nagarjuna teach that was to become so important in the descent of Eastern metaphysics? And how did this teaching compare with that of Western mystical revivals? Actually, the teachings of the two are so similar that it is now believed that some interdependency did exist and that the Bodhisattva doctrine as advanced by Nagarjuna may have been inspired by early contact with Christianity. On the other hand, it's also been suspected that Neoplatonism, Gnosticism, and Hermeticism are Europeanized adaptations of esoteric Buddhism brought along the caravan routes from High Asia. Broadly speaking, both Eastern and Western mystics recognize three levels of knowledge and three ways in which it can be attained. By knowledge, we mean the sacred truths of religion and philosophy. The first way of attainment is by study and research. It assumes no extraordinary capacity on the part of the truth seeker, except sincerity and a reasonably well-cultivated intellect. By this means, strength of character can be induced through acquaintance with the noblest concepts and beliefs of mankind, and through the advancement of arts and sciences, 
the increase of skills and the maturing of judgment. The second way by which enlightenment can be advanced is called spiritual intuition. This is the stimulation of the inner resources of the individual by which he comes to sense or feel within himself the reality of his own spiritual life. It does not follow that any metaphysical faculties have to be developed, rather. Enlightenment is based upon a sensing of realities and values and a conviction that inner guidance is valid and that inner certainty is reasonable and even factual. The third way is described as standing face to face with reality. It's the refinement and amplification of the inner life to the degree that spirituality is a complete experience sustained and supported by the testimonies of all faculties of the mind and the regeneration of the sensory perceptions. This may be considered an illumination or mystical experience. These three levels can be paralleled with the three degrees of knowledge accepted by the Kabbalists. Using the Temple of Solomon as the symbol of the House of Wisdom, they recognized it as a divisible into three parts, the courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy of holiest. These, in turn, were likened to the three degrees of spiritual instruction, the Torah, or the law of Moses was for those who studied and sought to inform themselves concerning the will of God. The Mishnah, which was called the soul of the law, was for those who possessed intuitive power and were able to sense the mystery beneath the literal exposition as set forth in the Torah. The third part was the Kabbalah, the truly esoteric doctrine containing the secret instructions by which the person could attain direct participation in the essence of God. The same thought is suggested in St. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians where he writes, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, now I know in part but then shall I know even as also I am known. In this 
The great apostle seems to describe the steps of human enlightenment using almost the same wording for illumination, seeing face to face, as we find in Mahayana Buddhism. A number of scholars have suggested the strong parallel between mystical Christianity and the Eastern system. These same authorities have also suggested that it was the rise of early Christian mysticism that ultimately sustained and justified Gnosticism and Neoplatonism. Of course, the pre-Christian Essenes, who have always been linked with Christianity and who faded out of history as the Christian ministry expanded, the Essenes are known to have held mystical beliefs and to have practiced esoteric rites, although no details have survived. In both East and West, the new interpretation was indeed the glad tidings. It opened the way for a religion of joy, hope, and at the same time, it broadened the foundation of faith, making it acceptable for those of every class or race who were victims of anxieties, sorrows, or bereavements, or for any reason felt the need for spiritual consolation. There can be no doubt that in both Asia and Europe, the deeper interpretation of the religious mystery brought with it some kind of science of salvation in India, this was derived from the deeper scientific principles expounded by Hinduism. In the West, it was established in the mystery schools or secret systems of initiatory rites practiced in Egypt, Greece, and to a limited extent in the Roman Empire. Believers were reminded there was much more to their faith than they had come to understand generally. Therefore, they might restore their confidence in the religion they followed and seek to inform themselves as to its esoteric instructional, all such instruction leading, of course, to the personal experience of illumination. For a time, these concepts remained vital in Europe but the Western mind had greater interest in the advancement of material culture. We have records that Gnosticism did not die completely until well into the Dark Ages, and there were several revivals that attempted restorations. Neoplatonism also lingered on to inspire many Christian mystics. The Hermetic arts had a brilliant revival which extended as late as the 16th and 17th centuries, and Kabbalism fell into approximately the same framework of dating. Manicheanism also lived on to vitalize the number of heresies and to become a prominent force in man's struggle for political liberty, social equality, and religious tolerance. A number of modern secret societies 
carry forward fragments of Manichaean belief. By degrees, however, mysticism outside the church was regarded with consistent disapproval by the clergy. With the Protestant Reformation, it almost totally vanished from Protestant Christianity, not to be revived until the 19th century, by which time it was confronted by a strong scientific opposition. In Asia, mysticism was more fortunate, and although the mystical sects of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism passed through minor periods of persecution, they were never actually driven underground or forced to conceal themselves under such elaborate symbolism as we find in Kabbalism and alchemy. The burden of the esoteric tradition is to assist the devout person to a new relationship with the universe in which he lives. East and West agree that man is not primarily a physical being, nor could he ever attain ultimate good by the perfection of his material institutions. In this point of view, Eastern asceticism is no more excessive than that practiced in the West. Early Christianity went through a great cycle of renunciation, and it's still held in many conservative sects that the renunciation of worldly ambition, worldly appetites, and worldly goods is indispensable to spiritual salvation. In this respect, Western doctrines fell upon complications similar to those that faced primitive Buddhism. It was almost impossible to make a religion of total renunciation attractive to the average believer. The monastic orders in Europe finally became more or less of a burden upon the spirit Monks who lived only to celebrate the mass and illumine missals and antiphonals seemed to be of a slight value to themselves or anyone else. Most of all, it did not appear that this unworldliness was actually enlarging their spiritual estates. By degrees, this isolation was broken down and the clergy was required to take some active part in the preservation and advancement of the social system moving about them. We can observe the trend consistently and today, most successful Christian movements advise their followers to put the simple ideals of Christ into work in their daily lives and to live together in kindliness, fraternity, and peace as a proof that they are truly Christians. Gnosticism certainly dramatized the universe, bestowing upon the abstractions of space, glorious and radiant appearances and filling the interval between heaven and earth with a hierarchy of evolving lives and intelligences, all of which were in some way involved in the growth of both the world and man. The Gnostics drew inspiration from the religious artistry of Egypt and the rich ritualistic poetry and the cosmological lore of Greece. They also found inspiration in fragmentary sections of the Testaments, both old and new, especially those parts which were brightened and made luminous 
by apocalyptic visions. Gnosticism simply refused to accept a cosmos with God above, man below, and nothing between except a few angelic or archangelic messengers. It assumed with Platonism that behind the veil, which is no more or less than a boundary of our own sensory perceptions, is a luminous universe. Magnificent in all its parts, surpassing in wonder any apparition that could have appeared to Ezekiel or Isaiah. According to Gnosticism, the emanations of the eternal principles cast in their shadowy forms downward into the abyss of matter. The process of the emanations uniting with their reflections by a kind of hermetic marriage becomes the interaction of spirit and matter in the region of phenomena. Every blade of grass, every tree, is the visible extremity of a vast, invisible process. The choirs of hierarchies are as inconceivable as the symbolism of Dante and Milton might suggest. These wonders are not to be named except by an adventure of the spirit beholding the substance of truth. For the rest, there can only be acceptances put into words or shapes that suggest but faintly the sublimity of their originals. This splendid vision gradually faded from the hearts and minds of most Western people. Even for the devout, the spectacle was unbelievable. It became convenient to merely expect a kind of spiritual morality, to strive ever to live well in the hope of earning a better destiny someday. Where this destiny would occur, if even earned, was uncertain. The visible became the fact, and the invisible faded away as far as man's consciousness was concerned. The unseen world ceased to be regarded as substantial, although there never was, and is not even today, any actual proof that visible forms cease where the power of vision ends. Many will feel that the issue is not especially vital and there need to be little time devoted to an effort to locate heaven or substantiate the findings of Aquinas as to how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. The real truth is that when we negated the invisible and ceased to sense at least the presence of superphysical machinery behind physical creation, we deprived ourselves of all evidence or proof that could sustain our moral and ethical codes. Morality could only be a personal decision to live a little better than our neighbor 
an ethics, a code of honesty that satisfied our own conscience. In all probability, Northern Buddhism would have failed and perished in limbo long ago had it not maintained its dynamic concepts of the unseen. It was so successful in the development of a religious artistry that it lowered all resistance of the human mind to the acceptance of the radiant likeness of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. The vision in the Lotus Sutra has been compared many times with the Christian apocalyptic works, both accepted and rejected, and recently it's been examined more closely in the light of the Gnostic apocalyptic books that have been found in the present century. Buddhists themselves claim that they can understand from their own sacred texts the real meaning in the book of Revelation. The Gnostics attempted sincerely to build an experiential concept of the universe that could support religion, convinced that if materialists explained only natural phenomena, they would arrive at conclusions distinctly antagonistic to faith. How could the unbeliever explain creation in a manner satisfactory to the devout? We can say, of course, that if the explanation is correct, it makes no difference who discovers the facts because they remain unchangeable. To this, both the Gnostic and the Buddhist would reply, this is all well and good, but how do we know who has the facts? Every discovery made by science can be explained in more than one way. What we call knowledge is explanation. It's a conclusion arrived at by the mind as the reasonable explanation of a phenomena. No one denies that many of these conclusions are probably right, but there's no way of knowing which ones can be wrong. If even 10% of our conclusions are in error, we might have to completely reconstruct our concept of the universe. We can't exist with a knowledge if we become aware of a fact that cannot be reconciled with this knowledge. Something has to change. Either the fact must be disproved or the knowledge must be reconstructed. Gnosticism was convinced that there could finally be only one form of knowledge, and that was universal. The ideas that separate arts and sciences should perfect their own systems with no consideration for each other, while no reconciliation of differences could not be tolerated. The easiest way to reconcile is by finding common ground in the beginning. If the universe is one firm structure of laws and procedures, then it is not necessary to separate one branch of learning from another or to isolate scholars from each other. Specialization is possible, but it should be based on knowledge of basic generalities. The more we can build a strong pattern of a magnificent 
purposeful existence in time and space. The more we can depend upon education to advance the social state of man. But if we divide knowledge from ethics, facts from morality, and wisdom from skill, we dismember that vast being, that great universal totality of which the poet has written, its body nature is, and God the soul. This phase of East-West thinking arose as the result of desperate need, but the situation remains unbalanced even in our century. We are completely suspicious of Oriental idealism, and the East is instinctively afraid of Occidental materialism. Must these unreconciled points of view forever serve as a barrier between intellectual and spiritual communion of the two hemispheres? The story of Western Gnosticism is a consistently tragic account of an advanced philosophical system striving for survival in a world of disillusioned and disheartened human beings. One of the principal accounts of the Gnostics is derived from Clement of Alexandria, a Christian writer of the Antonicene period who had little or no sympathy for heathen heresies. On the assumption that the Gnostics were attempting to impose an Eastern philosophic structure upon Christianity, the pious felt it was their moral duty to belittle and defame both the Gnostic teachers and the system of learning they thought to disseminate. Actually, what the Gnostics were attempting to do was bridge Eastern and Western learning. But the time was not favorable and remained auspicious until the present century. Because it was subject to persecution from the very beginning, very few records bearing upon the lives of predominant leaders or the deeper aspects of their teaching have survived. The recent discovery of the Gnostic library at Chernobyl in central Egypt is the most important light to be cast upon the subject in 15 centuries. Even now, however, we have only certain literary remains which are useful in as much as they indicate the mystical trend of the better informed Gnostic teachers. It's known that Gnosticism affirmed the Oriental belief in reincarnation and probably found some support among followers of the old Platonic Pythagorean systems. Unfortunately, however, Gnosticism was bitterly assailed by Neoplatonism probably because of its emphasis on transcendentalism and esoteric practices. In some way, the Gnostics must have contacted some of the tantric beliefs which were rising in Northern Asia. This is especially evident in the Gnostic teaching of Shakti, or female consorts of the various divinities and divine powers. In both East and West, the Shakti were not intended to represent actual goddesses, but rather 
the personification of the feminine quality or polarity of existence. The Chinese and the Gnostics were in agreement that the divine energies operating in space moved upon various conditions or levels of substance, causing matter or the negative pole of life to be aroused and unite itself with the positive creating principle. In Chinese metaphysics, man was the child of heaven and earth, spirit and matter, God and nature. These polarizations are represented in Tibetan art by the deities embracing their feminine counterparts. A hint of this is also to be found in what has survived in the original Gnostic theogony. In Northern Asia, a deity appeared which had been among the most mysterious of Eastern esoteric symbols. This deity is called Prajna Paramita and is depicted as feminine. She is a bodhisattva, the embodiment of universal wisdom, and in a sense, the personification of the great religious book, the Prana Paramajita Sutra. She is the patroness of the book and is the living substance which it contains. She is a strangely detached and wonderful being, and like the Greek Athena, the Latin Minerva and Egyptian Isis, and the Gnostic Sophia, she was identified with the whole structure of the system of initiation into those sacred institutions now called the Mysteries. Several writers on Orientalism have pointed out that Sophia, as the virgin of the world, was so similar to the Prajnaparamita concept that it must be assumed that there was some common ground around which developed this world idea that eternal wisdom is feminine. It became an essential part of many religions, and we'll find it again in the Kabbalah as the mother of the alphabet with its magical letters. Although the tantric Buddhism of India gradually faded out of its own land and moving eastward, established its strongholds in the deserts of Central Asia and China, it would not be correct to say that the system was ever under any desperate form of general persecution. At no time was the Yogacaya or esoteric school of Buddhism in actual danger of extermination. Unlike Gnosticism, which vanished away before the 8th century AD and was virtually extinct three or four centuries earlier, esoteric Buddhism still survives. Its ancient Gnostic rites are performed to this day, and its membership in Japan numbers nearly 10 million. It also exists in China, Korea, Nepal, and Tibet, but in several of these countries, its present condition is difficult to estimate. The simple fact of importance is that esoteric Buddhism can still be studied as a living religion, whereas its equivalent in the Mediterranean region can be approached only historically, and most of the historical records have been mutilated or destroyed 
another reason for antagonism against Gnosticism. And to a degree, esoteric Buddhism suffered the same complaint. And that complaint was that the tantric school emphasized various aspects of ceremonial magic. This might cause us to ask the origin of the demonology and witchcraft that arose in Europe during the Dark Ages. The Yogacaya school made use of many strange and secret rituals. The founders of this sect took the old hand postures of India and early hand postures found on the first images of Buddha and his ahats, evolving from this comparatively simple beginning a complete symbolic language of mudras. So complex is this science of the hands and the various positions in which the fingers can be placed that practically the entire doctrine of Eastern philosophy could be transmitted by these hand positions without a single spoken word. J.S.M. Ward, in his most interesting book, The Sign Language of the Mysteries, advances the theory that European Christian art also had a secret language of mudras and that famous painters almost invariably made use of appropriate hand positions and arrangement of fingers when depicting the saints of Christendom, the martyrs, and their disciples. If Ward is correct, the early Christian religious painters were initiates of some secret school which communicated these hand positions. Another interesting phase of the subject is mantras or sound patterns. Certain types of mantras are known everywhere in the religious world, and there's much to indicate that the Gnostics made use of what they called invocations or incantations in the drawing up of spirits, casting out of demons, purifying the minds of worshipers, and invoking the divine presence in the performance of a mass research will probably show parallels, which I've already noted to some degree, in which the transcendental magicians of Egypt and the magical Kabbalists of early Europe followed almost completely oriental procedures. Another example is the magic circle. This occurs in the texts of many books of spirits used in Kabbalistic magic and by the necromancers of Central Europe. There's definitely a parallel between the magic circle associated with demonology and witchcraft and the mandala, which in a sense is the magic circle of Hinduism and Buddhism. According to a recent writer on Buddhist Tantra, the mandala had many meanings, symbolical, mathematical, and cosmological, but it was also a magic circle by which certain spiritual beings or intelligences could be commanded or caused to arise in the consciousness of the adept. The parallels between Eastern and Western Gnosticism could be considerably enlarged. In both groups, charms, mysterious spell letters, numerical designs, and protective amulets were commonly used. 
just as various deities, with their names and the shrines in which they were venerated, were block printed in China, Korea, and Japan and used as protections against evil. So the Gnostics had a small book of magical figures and carved protective symbols and designs into semi-precious stones. These provide a rare group of research material described by King in his text on Gnostic gems. As Gnosticism contributed greatly to the rise of metaphysical movements within the structure of Christianity, although the sect of the Gnostics was short-lived as an independent organization, so Oriental Gnosticism vitalized not only many schools of Buddhist thought, but mingled its influence with other religions with which it came into contact. We may therefore distinguish, at least dimly, a pattern of world Gnosticism, which has added to most religions a metaphysical factor that inspired the leaders to seek for hidden meanings in their sacred writings and not to accept without question literal stories or texts. That marks the end of chapter two in Manly P. Hall's The Wisdom of the Knowing Ones. In our next episode, we'll be reading chapter three, Alexandria, The Cradle of Western Mysticism. Thank you for venturing into the unknown with me. Full details about the selected text are available in the episode description. Selected readings are for the purpose of research and study, entertainment and discussion. The views and opinions expressed in the included readings belong to the original authors and creators and may not necessarily reflect my own. The episode description also contains links that will allow you to join the community on social and support the continued production of this podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast player so you're alerted when new episodes are released. In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die, ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam, life what is it but a dream? Night, night, bitch.